0: And we have been in the book of Isaiah. We've been going through Isaiah chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but we're taking a little break. One of the things that we like to do uh, every year is kind of review and refresh everybody on eldership. We like to talk about what the scripture says elders are to be and to do. I like to call it the work of an elder, not the role of an elder, because it's about the work that the elders do. So we are going to see that uh, this morning. And if you have your copy of God's word, please open up to Acts chapter 20. Just what Teague read for us this morning is where we'll be. As I was doing some research for this, did you know that there is a Wikipedia page dedicated to just wolf attacks in North America? It's true. It lists out all of the wolf attacks, whether they were fatal or non-fatal, that occurred in North America. Long list of them you can go through. In fact, the oldest one dates back to uh, uh, 1761. And it mentions Daniel Boone being attacked by wolves. And we have that record. And it's fascinating. And beyond that, there's a link there on that page that actually has a list of all known wolf attacks around the world. That one dates back to the 1340s. And you can see these wolf attacks that have occurred everywhere in the world. And I I found that fascinating, number one, that someone would take the time to compile that list and then to make it available. But for the sermon, I'm glad they did because we're gonna talk about fierce wolves attacking. But you know, one of the things that I noticed when I was going through that, that long list I learned that most of the, the, especially the lone wolf attacks were against the vulnerable. The wolves attacked children, uh, women, and those who were alone. Now, don't get me wrong. There are certainly stories of attacks against men and even against armed men, but that was highly unlikely when the men were in groups of three or more. There's one story of three men being attacked by wolves at night, and they all escaped, and Reportedly killed 27 of the wolves that had attacked him that night. And when descriptions were provided, often what would happen after an attack is a group of men from the village would get together and hunt down the wolves to get rid of the wolves because the wolves were so fierce and so dangerous. The wolves had no interest in going head to head with a group of men hunting them. And I also noticed the purpose of the attacks when the wolves attacked, they attacked with the purpose to devour, to completely destroy. And as gruesome as that sounds, the wolves were not interested in just distracting people or scaring them or taking just one bite. No, the wolves devoured their prey and they didn't tidy up after they finished. They left a bloody scene of destruction behind them. It's not often in my sermon preparation I get to study wolf attacks. But when the Apostle Paul describes false teachers as fierce wolves, I wanted to see what he was thinking about. In our passage today, we're once again confronted with the realities of church life. Yes, we've been in the book of Isaiah, which seems really so far away yes that was 2700 years ago that Isaiah wrote that and we read about what's happening in these other countries we read about the the sin and the judgment against those countries we read about and we study the the glorious future that God has for 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 humanity for for those who are saved but this morning we have to get our hands dirty See, we have to get into the trenches of church life today. See, we're going to have to go and we're going to have to talk about the things this morning that aren't the pleasant things in church life. And I don't want anybody to be discouraged because we're not talking about the joy of Christian life. We're not talking about the glorious things that we could be talking about, but we're talking about what really happens in the church. And we're going to talk about why elders are so necessary. And good elders especially, so necessary from that. We're going to, once again here, wade through the muck and the mire in the trenches of daily Christian life. Yeah, we'll keep Isaiah in mind, because that's a glorious future. And there he reminds us of the dangers of sin and the glory to come. But today, Paul is going to remind us of the danger of this world now and how we live in that world. And, that the, and the grace of God that provides for our sanctification and in the amazing inheritance that awaits us. Paul has a message for the elders of Ephesus. He has a charge for them to follow. He has a command. The elders must shepherd the flock, guard against the wolves and go boldly in the confidence and strength of God. That's what he's gonna tell them. It's a very simple battle plan. Yet it's a difficult plan to execute due to the dangers that await. And in fact, I would say it's an impossible plan if we don't go in the grace, the power and the strength of God, we cannot do it alone. So Paul crafted his message to the elders at Ephesus carefully. And although he was talking to elders, these were not all paid professionals that had full-time ministry. Don't think of it that way. This is a group of men that included uh, the men who had regular jobs, probably had families. They would work 40 to 60 hours a week at whatever vocation they had to provide for their family. And then they would work more hours to serving the church and to serving Christ through their service to the church. One thing they had in common, these men, was a deep vested interest in the life of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. They loved and they served the local church. So Paul knowing the dangers, he envisions for them the kind of person that it takes to shepherd, to guard, and to trust God in their work. This person has to be well-rounded, they have to be committed to to doctrine and to the word of God. And yet they also have to tenderly shepherd the people and not just pray for them or counsel them, but to really feel their needs and carry their burdens. You also had to defend against predators because the predators are out there. Paul doesn't envision a shepherd sitting on some picturesque hillside playing his fruit, flute, (laughs) while a little fluffy white sheep frolic around on the hillside around him. That's not the shepherd's life. The shepherd is looking for the dangers. The shepherd is looking for the predators. The shepherd is looking for those that are going to attack the flock. These are the hunter killers who want to devour, the sheep. And finally, this kind of person has to be completely dependent on God for everything. They could have no confidence in themselves. They must only have confidence in the God of the universe. So as Paul writes his messages, he crafts his message. He does something interesting with it. He kind of bookends his message with the call to imitate him. So at the very beginning, we see he's going to describe his his own work, and he's going to say, you know it. You've seen it. I was with you. You can testify. You were able to observe this. And at the very end, he's going to again describe himself for the purpose of imitation. So Paul knows that New Testament leadership is about being an example. So Paul says, imitate me. He bookends it with, you know, and then he describes what he did. He's saying, let me tell you what it looks like. So it's important that there is no credibility gap between what you say and how you live. And in between those bookends, Paul is going to describe his motivation for ministry. What makes him press on? What makes him go forward in the light of what we're going to see? And then finally, he has his charge to the elders. And after that, there's the tearful goodbye. So let's begin in verse 17. We're going to kind of set the scenes. Verse 17, the beginning of verse 18, it says, Now from Miletus, um, uh, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you see, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem. You see, we can look back in scripture and especially in Corinthians. And for those in my home group who spent two years going for through first Corinthians and second Corinthians, this better be familiar. I'm just saying we spent two years on this, but Paul was, was collecting an offering for the church in Jerusalem. You see a famine had hit that part of the world and hit it pretty hard. And so Paul saw this as an opportunity for two things. Number one, he said, if we can collect an offering for them, it will help relieve their suffering. So let's collect an offering. But number two, the ones who were suffering were Jewish Christians. And he knew that there was kind of a little bit of a divide between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians that should not be there. So this was a great opportunity for Gentile Christians to serve their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. And Paul saw that as a wonderful opportunity. And he spent years collecting this offering from all of the churches around Asia Minor, that he could take it to Jerusalem and present it to the church and said, this is from your Gentile brothers and sisters who care deeply for you. And on his way, the ship made a stopover, over Miletus. It's about 30 miles south of Ephesus. So the ship would stop there, would unload cargo and have to load more cargo on. So there were probably several days where where they were hanging out in Miletus. So Paul says, hey, go get the elders at Ephesus and ask them to come here. He's gonna make a farewell address. And he does this for a couple of reasons. Number one, Paul had served in Ephesus for three years. He loved those people. That was a church he planted and he loved them dearly and he wanted to see them again, but also he knew through the Holy Spirit that he would not see them again. This is his last chance to speak to them face to face, to speak to them directly, to encourage them and to show them his love for them. So Paul calls for them to come down. And he sends sends for the elders. Now the term elder identifies them as pastors, but the emphasis is really on spiritual maturity. And while the term overseer describes their function, all three terms, elder, pastor, and overseer are the same office, same person, same function. So he's calling for the elders who are the pastors, who are the overseers to come. And when they arrive, Paul shared what was on his heart. And he began by saying, you yourselves know." You see, the, A- the Ephesian elders had observed his ministry while he was there with them for three years. And he said this not just to be an example, but he also said it kind of to fend off the false teachers attempting to tear down what he had built. You see, this was his street cred. This is what he's laying out to them. This is why my message has validity. You saw my life and you saw how it lined up with what scripture teaches. That's credibility. When you see that, you know that my message is true. So he's, he's doing this and he knows that the false teachers are going to come and they're going to be divisive. This happened in Corinth. One of the main tools they have is being divisive. They start whispering and playing favorites. And then they start twisting the word of God. So Paul calls them together. Paul had to continually defend the gospel and his ministry. And he knew that the false teachers would come. But the purpose of this was not an either or to just be an example or to defend his credibility. What is a both Paul saying, let me tell you what kind of man it's going to take to shepherd, to guard and to boldly go. So while Paul doesn't directly say imitate me, he's actually doing that same thing. This isn't unusual for Paul. When he says you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. In 1 Corinthians, he says, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Again, in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. First Thessalonians, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Second Thessalonians: three: For you know yourselves how you ought to imitate us. First Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. Why would you set yourself as an example? so that people would imitate you, so they would do what you're doing. Remember, New Testament leadership is about being an example. So Paul is laying that out. He wants them to imitate. In Hebrews, it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way and imitate their faith. Peter says, be examples to the flock. We are called to be examples. And Paul wants the Ephesian elders to imitate him. And being an example is a great instructional technique. So years ago, in the mid to late 80s, I had joined the Air Force. I wanted to be a pilot, but I wore glasses, so that was off the table. But they would let me go to navigator school, and I thought, that at least gets me in an airplane. So I will go to navigator school. And we started the book learning of what it means to be a navigator. And then it came time we had to learn about the flying aspect of it and we began flight training and our flight training consisted first of this little airplane a little side-by-side jet trainer called the t-37 some people referred to it as the converter because it converts jet fuel directly into noise <laughs> but it was a little jet trainer that we had and on my very first flight, I had a lieutenant colonel instructor pilot that was going to instruct me. And here I am, a little second lieutenant, haven't even had my, my butter bars. That's the gold bars the second lieutenant, wears haven't even had them for a year yet. I've got a lieutenant colonel who's going to be my instructor, and I'm wondering, how's this going to go? I really don't know anything yet. This could be a rough ride. Let's see what happens. Well, he got us through the checklist. We got the plane going, got airborne. And once we got airborne and got to the training area, he started teaching me how to fly the jet. And I'll be honest with you, it's not that hard. Do this with a stick, trees get bigger. Do this, trees get smaller. <laughs> Do this, they go that way. Do this, they go that way. How hard can it be, right? So, but he's teaching me how to fly the airplane, how to climb, how to descend, how to turn, how to you know, maintain heading. And I thought, well, this is unusual. This is pilot stuff, not navigator stuff. But then what he did was he had me fly the airplane and he was the navigator. And he began acting like the navigator. He watched the altitude. And if we were too high, he would tell me that we're too high. Get, you know, get back on altitude. If we got left, of course, he'd say, come right. We got to get back on course. He played the navigator. Are we too slow or too fast? Whatever a navigator would do is what he did. It was outstanding training. I actually got to see what a navigator would do now. Everything that I had in book learning, you could think one thing or the other, but now I had an example of what a navigator did. The apostle Paul is saying, my life is your example. You've had some book learning, but you need that example and follow what it means. So he now is going to walk us through five characteristics of his ministry that he wants us to to follow. He begins, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He begins by reminding them that their ministry is a ministry of service. And he reminds them who they serve. You see, the ministry of, uh, to Paul was serving the Lord. And that's what we do. The men and women who greet people at the door on Sunday morning are serving the Lord. The women who serve behind the hospitality table are serving the Lord. Everybody involved in ministry here is serving the Lord. And we have to keep that in mind that that's who we are serving. In Ephesians 6, Paul reminded them that even to their employers, he said, You're not just merely employees serving your employers, but we serve God through our work. In Colossians 3, he reminded them, Is the Lord Christ whom you serve? So Paul would tell them how to serve first with humility. And I got to quote this guy, John Christostom, one of my favorite, the golden-tongued early church leader, great speaker. And this is what he said about humility. Humility is the root, mother, nurse, and foundation of all Christian virtue. You start this with humility. Why? You see, humility is the opposite of pride. And pride is dangerous to any ministry. You see pride trusts in themselves or anything other than God. It trusts in wealth or it trusts in position or in friends or in titles or anything else that you think will provide for your needs other than God. When we trust anything besides God, we become prideful. George Whitfield, he's a great 18th century preacher, was very aware of the dangers of pride. And if you don't know George Whitfield, and he's speaking outdoors, this is in the 1700s, and it's said that he would draw crowds of 25 to 30,000 people to hear him speak. But he was aware of that, he had these great crowds, and they said that he could bring a crowd to tears just by saying the word Mesopotamia. That's a speaker right there, but he, he just had that ability. In fact, Ben Franklin, became a friend of his and Ben Franklin said that he had to quit taking his purse or his wallet to go see him because when he was done, he would give all his money to Whitfield cause he just heard him speak. He said, like, yeah, take it off, take it off. But Ben Franklin became a little bit suspicious of this, by the way, 25 to 30,000 people. Is that real? So he did an experiment. Ben Franklin's known for that. So one day when Whitfield was speaking and preaching and he's got this huge crowd, Mr. Franklin gets up close to to the podium there and he's listening. And as Whitfield is speaking, he just kind of slowly moves to the back and he's counting his steps. And he's like, can I still hear him? Can I still hear him clearly? And, and what he does is he walks back to where he couldn't hear him clearly anymore, did the calculation, did the math of how much square footage was covered by the voice of George Whitfield, and then calculated the number of people that you can have per square foot or square foot per person, and actually came up with a number, twenty-five to 30,000 people could hear George Whitfield speak. You can imagine in the, in the 1700s how that could make you prideful that you were known as that type of speaker. People came from all over. I actually have a copy of a diary of an, of an ancestor of mine from that time. And she was a young girl at the time, probably around 12 to 14 years old at the time. And she wrote in her diary that George Whitfield had come. he had come out to the farms near Philadelphia. And when George Whitfield came, people dropped what they were doing. And they came to hear him speak. He was that kind of speaker and she wrote about it in her diary, that George Whitfield had been there. And she simply wrote what he preached about and then listed people who were there, you know. That's what was fascinating to her. Yet George was very aware of his abilities and the dangers of pride. So when someone approached him after a sermon, and used words like that was wonderful or you were so eloquent or whatever words of flattery they would use he would reply I know the devil told me just that as I was stepping down from the pulpit (laughs) it wasn't to be mean to the person but it was to remind himself that that's the tactic the enemy will use to get you to be prideful humility is required for successful ministry, dependence on God alone. Next, the ministry of tears. It's actually a venue for tears, tears for sympathetic pain in others and tears for personal pain. You see, Paul was a man of great empathy. He learned to identify with those whom he'd ministered and leaders must lean into ministry and carry the burdens of others. This requires a soul-bearing vulnerability to be closely identified with others, that you'll feel their pain. He cares about people, and seeing them in distress or sin or other trials would bring tears to his eyes. Romans 12, 15 says, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The Apostle Paul was a man like that. John Piper said serving the Lord means getting so intensely involved in people's struggles that you cry over them. It means getting involved in people's struggles for faith and hope and truth and holiness. You see leaders, the elders and and other leaders in the church will see the many evils that befall the flock in this broken world. We see that and it brings tears. And we share the burdens of the members under our care. But there's also tears for personal pain. Apparently, sheep don't just often smell bad, sometimes they bite. And besides, you know, the personal loss, there's also that betrayal. There's slander in the church, there's gossip that attacks the leadership. And especially now in an age of social media, it provides some sort of apparent anonymity, cover so to speak, to write or say anything you think or want to say. Often things you wouldn't say or, or, or in public or to someone's face. Please don't be the reason for personal pain in another believer's life. Finally, there are trials here Trials are inevitable in ministry. Luther said this. He said, Psalm 119 shows three things that go into the making of a theologian. Prayer, meditation, and trial. Listen to what he said about trial. Thirdly, there is testing. This is the touchstone. It teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty how comforting God's word is. It is wisdom supreme. This is why you observe that is in this psalm. David so often complains of all sort of enemies for as soon as God's word becomes known through you, the devil will afflict you. He will make a real theologian of you through trials. Here are two quick points about trials in leaders' lives or in anybody's life. Number one, don't be the trial. Paul describes in, in 2 Corinthians a thorn in his flesh. One understanding of that is that thorn described as a messenger of, of, of the devil was actually a person. It was that troublemaker, that person that just constantly attacked Paul over and over again. Don't be That type of person. People often feel better about themselves when they can take down others they see as more important, so don't do it. Get rid of, avoid, slay, slander, gossip, and backstabbing. If some of you, if someone has an issue with an elder, go to the elders, not to others. If you hear someone griping about anyone else, lovingly correct them. You see, this is the stuff that destroys ministries. This is the stuff that destroys unity. We call it redemptive relationships, where we care so much about one another's holiness that even if we see them in sin, we'll call them out because that's what's best for them. Number two, the elders will disappoint you. Elders too are fallen flesh and we will have to make decisions that people will disagree. It's just that way. We often don't have the luxury to make no decision at all. So when the elders fail or disappoint you, go to them. By the way, this recently happened here at this church. We had somebody and he handled it perfectly. He had an issue with the elders and he sent an email to all the elders. But in his email, he, ha- he included really two things that were very important. He said, number one, I'm not going to anyone else. I'm coming to you alone. He's not gonna gossip. He's not gonna slander. He's not gonna mention it to anyone else. I'm coming to you alone. And number two, whatever you guys say, I'm good with. I'm bringing this to you. This is my concern, but I'm good with what you, what you guys decide. Wow, that's how you do it, by the way. We corrected what we did, we we made some corrections to it. We took that admonishment and, and, and made changes. But that's exactly how you do church business. That's church business done well. We're not perfect, we will make mistakes. And please don't think ever that the elders are out to get you. They're out there to destroy your joy. They're out there to withhold something that is better for you. That's a lie coming from the enemy. That's what the devil told Eve in the garden. Did God really say that? No, God God's keeping something from you. So don't let that be true in your lives. Number 3, help the leaders in their trials. Leaders go through trials. Help them. First best way, pray for them. Best thing you can do. Secondly, don't exasperate negative feelings or cause the elders to sin. Don't say something like, oh yeah, he is a real jerk, you know? And by the way, I've also heard him say these things. And you tell that to the, you're, you're making it more difficult for the elder. That's not how you help somebody who has been wronged. Somebody who has been offended, you don't help them that way. Remind them of Christ's call to grace, forgiveness and peace. That's what you do. Next, we see ministry of the word, verse 20. And He's reminding him how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul was faithful to the ministry of the word. This was important to Paul and it's important to us. This is why we call ourselves a Bible church. Why scriptures is is the greatest and most least most lethal weapon for change in the universe. In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man that Jesus told, Lazarus is now in a place of suffering. Not, not Lazarus, the rich man. Lazarus is with Abraham. The rich man's in a place of suffering. And when he realizes that he can't relieve his suffering and he can't get out, he thinks of his family members who are still alive on earth. And he says, well, then do me this favor. Could you send Lazarus back and warn my brothers of how terrible this is? so that they change their ways. And what was the response? He says they have Moses and the prophets. They have the word of God. And if that can't convince them, neither will a man rising from the dead convince them. This is why we're committed to the word of God. The most lethal weapon for change that we have is right here. And the Apostle Paul was committed to it as well. He was faithful and courageous to preach the word. He did not shrink back. In Galatians 2, Paul describes Peter as shrinking back. Remember in Galatians, Paul went and he was eating and, and enjoying time with the Gentile believers. But when the Judaizers, the, the Jewish Christians, came up, Paul quit hanging out with the Gentiles for fear of them. He shrunk back from his ministry for the fear of people. We are not to shrink back. There's a sober warning in Ezekiel 33 it says, so you son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked and turn from his way that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. See, we are not to shrink back from the ministry of the word. It must be faithful and courageous. We must speak whatever is profitable even if someone doesn't want to hear it. If someone needs to repent, it's our responsibility to call them to repentance. This is what redemptive relationships is all about. We must care for one another's holiness to the point that we will even speak what is profitable yet uncomfortable because no one likes to do that. And also our ministry of the word must be everywhere and it must be constant. It needs to be public. Luke sums this up and he's talking about Paul's public preaching ministry in Acts 18 and he says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. He can use hyperbole there that said Paul was so committed to that public ministry. They all heard it. They heard the gospel but it also must be house to house. You see, pulpit ministry is only part of it. We must speak in any and every conversation. Colossians 3, Jared often reminds us of that from the pulpit. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with uh, thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we are to admonish one another with scripture. And encourage one another with scripture. And then finally, Paul's going to recall his evangelism. His concern for the lost was so great that he cried out, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. First Corinthians 9. We are called, we are to call people to repentance and to faith. To repent is to change your mind or your purpose. It's changing direction. A 19th century. Theologian describes it as a gracious power bestowed only on the elect by which they lay aside the life of sin and busy themselves with righteousness. So that's what it means to repent. But it's not just a turning away from sin. We have to turn them to Christ. There's only one way to heaven, through Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And he meant it. Christ alone saves. Our gospel message must be clear that people are not basically good and only need to choose the right path to go to heaven. No, we are sin-sick people through and through. We, are, we were sinners stuck in the realm of sin and death, unable to save or rescue ourselves. And only God, can pluck sinners from that realm and give them new life. And that's only through Jesus Christ. Our gospel message, repent and turn to Christ, must be what we preach. Next, Paul gets into his motivation for ministry. They couldn't observe these about Paul because they were his motivation. But Paul, number one, he says, uh, verse 22 says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me and that in every city, uh, in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, of the grace of God. Paul trusted in God's perfect plan. He was bound in the spirit, meaning he was obliged to obey the spirit. He had committed in his heart that he would obey the spirit. I, I've told this before, but uh, years ago when I was a youth leader in Omaha, Nebraska, I took the youth to a conference and on Friday night the, the, the speaker had encouraged all the youth to, sp- to spend some quiet time with God, to have devotions with God on a daily basis. We got back to the church that we were staying at, sleeping down in the basement on sleeping bags on the floor. And this young guy, he was like eighth grade at the time. His name was Peter, came up to me and he said, are you going to get up early to have devotions? And I said, yes, I need to wake everybody by seven, but I'm getting up before that. I'm going to get up at six. And he said, will you wake me up? And I said, I would gladly wake you up at six if that's what you're going to do. And then his next words. Sometimes my mom has to come in two or three times to wake me up, because I don't wake up right away. And I said to him, I said, you need to decide right now. Right now, are you getting up at six or are you sleeping until seven? And he said, I'm getting up at six. And the next morning when I said, Peter, it's time to get up. Boom, he was up and having devotions. This is the kind of dedication we must have. We are obliged to follow God's perfect plan though we may not understand it. And even if we're told to expect only suffering, we know it's part of God's perfect plan. I'm reminded of the charge to Isaiah, the great scene in heaven, who will go for me? And when Isaiah accepts, he's later told, oh, by the way, you're going to have years of fruitless ministry the people won't listen. So why go? Because it's part of God's perfect plan. That's why. So we walk according to plan. His plan means we walk in faith, one step away from the unknown. Yet we walk boldly and bravely trusting God, the God who created the universe, the God who had no beginning. Next we see that to Paul faithfulness is more precious than life. Paul said he can do this ministry because he counted his life as nothing. Solomon would remind us in Ecclesiastes that all is vanity or vapor. So what is important? What do we do? It's what we do for Christ. All else is hay, wood and stubble. In my family history, I often quiz my my family members, nieces and nephews, and I quiz them about my fourth great grandfather, John Caskey, who lived in the 17 and 1800s in Pennsylvania. And I'll ask him, I said, do you know know what he used to do for a living? And they'll say, no. And I'll say, neither do I. But do you know who he married? And he's like, no. I said, neither do I. But do do you know what his dreams were? What his aspiration, what what was just so dear to him was? They're like, no. And I said, neither do I. My fourth great grandfather lived 200 years ago, and I can't tell you anything about his life except his name and where he lived. Only that which is done for Christ will be eternal. Everything else is hay, wood, and stubble. Faithfulness is more precious than life. And for those who are aging and suffering the consequences of aging, I encourage you as well. If God has kept you here, there is a purpose. You see the ministry of prayer of a 90 year old saint living in a nursing facility, receiving few visitors and only having reruns on television for company. Their prayer ministry is just as valuable in God's kingdom as someone cutting through jungle thickets to share the gospel with an unreached tribe somewhere. If God has kept you here for a purpose, that purpose is for his plan and we remain faithful. You never run out of purpose in God's economy. Remain faithful. Then finally, his final motivation is the enormous consequences of ministry. You see, elders must never speak only what is pleasing to the flock and tickling to the ears. We preach expository sermons book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're going through Isaiah now. And even though we take breaks, we're in scripture. We preach the whole counsel of God. And as an example, I've been asked several times, if not many times over the years, why do we preach on eschatology when it's so controversial? That's a question I've received. See, there are plenty of other non-controversial topics we could cover. There are needs elsewhere addressed by scripture. Why do we focus on eschatology? Well, because that's what's in the word of God when we get there. See, it's part of the whole counsel of God. Second Timothy 316 says all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And that includes eschatology. We preach the whole counsel of God. Why? So that we don't have the blood of anyone on our hands. That's the consequence. As Ezekiel was warned, if we fail to warn people, if we fail to warn you, you are the flock that has been given to the elders here. You are the one under our charge, under our care. If we fail to, to, to give you the entire counsel of God, your blood could be on our hands. So we will not withhold. There are certainly passages we'd be more preferable to skip over or to just quickly pass by. No, we need to focus on those because it's part of the counsel of God. Next, we get to the charge to the elders. Verse 28, He says, pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. First, be on guard for yourselves. This this applies, by the way, to all leaders. This isn't just for elders. There are many in the church who are leaders. Be on guard for yourselves. This involves intense prayer and time in the word. Writing of a Puritan, he said, a minister that uh, may fill his pews, his communion role, the mouths of the public, but, but what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is, and no more. That applies to all of us. It's our time with God, it's who we are, our personal holiness, we can be no more than that. Take care, pay careful attention to yourselves. And what we are to do here is to shepherd the flock, to care for the flock. You are our responsibility. That means we need to get to know you and as we're in a larger and larger church, that's more and more difficult, which is why we have other leaders, small group leaders and others to help. But we are to shepherd the flock that is, that is among us. And the next is to guard. Paul says this, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. We are called to be alert and to warn the flock. Who are these fierce wolves? These are the false teachers that come into the church. Now they don't come in looking like fierce wolves, though that's what they are. You see, that'd be easy to identify. If someone came into the church and said, hey, I think we need to be about robbing banks. Let's all go go rob banks. We'd say, no, that's not what we're about here. But they're sneakier than that. They're a lot more clever. And they're going to come in, and they're going to start the divisiveness. They're going to start the gossip, the slander. And you know what? They often don't start with the elders. They're going to start with someone here. They'll get to the elders. They'll get to the leaders. But they're going to start with the people in here. And, And you might see it, you know, oh yeah, you know, Hank over there. Well, he is a troublemaker. I get that. Why don't the elders do something about him and blah, 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 whatever. That's how they come in. Their purpose is to be divisive. Their purpose is to rip apart, to devour. They want to destroy unity in the church. And that's how they'll start. But you know what? They'll also come from among us. And this, this is the beauty of redemptive relationships. That that, that care for one another that recognizing it right away and dealing with sin when we see it is very, very protective and we must do that. And how do you handle this? Well, when someone comes in and starts talking, number one, don't participate in the gossip or the slander. In fact, it's best that you pull them aside and say, Hey, that's wrong. We can't do that. But if someone says, I've got an offense against so-and-so or an offense against the elders, what do you do? You tell them to go talk to that person or go talk to the elders, talk to the person. You don't gossip about it. You don't go pass on that story and that gossip. You deal with that offense or whatever it is right away. But this is the challenge when they come in, they just gossip and we have to put a stop to it. That's what we're called to do. Now we've been fortunate, I think, uh, for the last number of years, we haven't had those outside wolves come in. But that doesn't mean they're not out there and they don't wanna come in. But we must guard the flock against that. And that's one of the roles of the elders. And see, they're gonna twist the scripture, they're gonna twist the word of God. So that's why we're so big into people learning the word of God. For us, teaching the word of God is so you can know when you hear it that it's wrong. And then third charge is run with confidence for this is God's plan. This is beautiful here too. Um, He says, now I command you, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, this is tough. Fierce wolves don't sound pleasant. Diseased sheep in the flock doesn't sound pleasant. But we're going under the grace and strength of God as leaders and members of this church. Finally, Paul gets into Imitate Me, part two. He says, number one, I did not covet. He says he was free from self-interest in three ways. Number one, he did not covet. And so he would see gold, silver, and fine apparel, but he didn't make that his goal. In fact, that would be one of the criticisms that his detractors in Corinth would lay against him. He doesn't dress as nicely as those guys look at him. He suffers too much when in fact those were the right credentials because he looks more like Christ than they did, but he didn't covet those things. He didn't do this for gain. Why we have a treasure in heaven that will far exceed anything here. We don't have to be about any materialism on earth, but number two, hard work. See, he gave more than an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. He served the church, and he did it with hard work. And serving the church is hard work. And there will be people who here who serve in the church, and you know there's hard work. You know things don't always go smoothly. You know that if you're a teacher, you have to spend time studying the text and preparing. Those are things you have to do. And then finally, he helps the weak, for Jesus said is more Blessed to give than to receive. Help the weak. Then he has his final farewell. And when he had had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. There was much weeping. They embraced him and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken. They will not see his face again. And they accompanied him to his ship. What a beautiful picture, though, of, of... unity of brotherhood. That the man who founded their church, the man who had taught them and raised them to spiritual maturity, was so loved by them that they were weeping because they knew they would see his face no more. That's a beautiful picture. But you see, that's not a picture of some board of trustees of some governing body that is not involved in the life of the church. That's why we call it the work of an elder, because the elders are involved in the life of the church. That means we're down in the trenches, in the muck and the mire, because that's where those relationships are formed and that's where our hearts are bound together. That's where we come together with you on the same mission that we are serving the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are also serving one another. That's where that takes place. I've got three application points here. Number one, attach yourself to a local church for growth and protection. If you are not part of a local church, who are the elders that are in charge of your spiritual health? You need to know that. And I I, I encourage you attach yourself to a good Bible-believing local church for growth and for protection. Number two sounds a little selfish, but support leadership. Don't be the trial. Don't be the point of suffering. Uh, in fact, it says even stronger in other places, submit to your leadership. Like I said just simply support, which would be nice. But, but not all leaders, not just your elders. Hopefully soon we'll have deacons, but we already have small group leaders. We have discipleship leaders. We have ladies Bible study leaders. We have you know equipping our teachers and leaders. Uh, support them in their ministry. No one's perfect. Certainly don't expect that. And then finally, embrace redemptive relationships. You see, if we're going to get through this muck and this mire together, we have to have one another's backs. I have to know that if I'm messing up out there, Tommy's going to come and, and, and admonish me and help me get it right. I need to know that. I don't want to be walking about trusting in my own self to get it all right. Embrace redemptive relationships. Let's pray. Oh, father, thank you for your word and the example of faithfulness we see in it. Grant to the elders and the leaders of this church, faithfulness and courage so that we do not ever shrink from the ministry of the word and expositing the whole counsel of God. Guard us from fierce wolves. Teach us all to be on the guard and to protect one another. Keep sin, especially gossip and divisiveness, away. And let the blood of no man be on our hands for failing to do your work. We pray this through the Son and by the Spirit.